no one ever sees me, sees me. I'm losing every battle. Can somebody save me, save me? I'm losing every battle. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Battle to Be Trauma Transformation podcast. And tonight we are here with Adam Latin, and we are going to have a whole different kind of trauma story for you. Tonight we're going to be talking a little bit about developmental trauma and some of the ways that that can affect uh, an individual's life. And we're going to go into just a massive, powerful story of defeating other people's expectations and limitations and proving them wrong and showing what dedication and purpose can actually do. But before we get into that, I do want to have a couple of announcements today. I really need everybody out there to be sending thoughts and prayers to a couple of amazing families. Um, We've got Kay and Kat both need a little bit of healing thoughts, prayers, and energy. And I know you guys all kind of know how powerful group energy can be. So if you could just pop them into your thoughts and send a little, little energy that way, they could really use that right now. And as usual, we're going to start tonight talking about Adam and who he is as a person now and what kind of things he's really into And all of that good stuff that shows us he's human just like you and I, has the same kind of life challenges, the same kind of life enjoyment. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. So uh, where do you want me to start? Tell us who you are. So my name's Adam Latin. I have the distinct pleasure to have... uh, I basically work as an empowerment coach. I do a lot of work to help people. I'm a licensed massage therapist. I actually, having really done work on my trauma, found that I have a unique perspective working with other people's traumas. And so it really really allows me to help people find tools and ideas and support in helping them live their best life. Um, I always love that phrase, live your best life. Because your best life and my best life are very different. Completely. And that's why I have my business, The Clearest You, is because I believe everyone is truly a unique individual. And it's when we own our identity and acknowledge what we can and especially what we can't do that we really can have uh, amazing positive experience in our life. So when you were young, you were diagnosed with what at the time they were calling learning disabilities. I like to always right. reframe learning. That yeah, learning they they were called learning disabilities. I was diagnosed with gross motor, fine motor learning disabilities. Um, I was diagnosed as bipolar, made, uh, having different depression and different situations. But a lot of it actually was as a result of how I was being raised and how I was sort of being shown how to connect with life. A lot of the methods and techniques and tools I was offered just didn't work for me. I'd actually had a number of seizures when I was younger, and I just feel like my 
brain is wired differently than a lot of other people's. And uh, especially going through school, I was able to absorb information when it was taught to me, but I wasn't able to actually absorb information through books or text. So a lot of times sitting and reading, and especially because of my fine motor and gross motor issues, writing things out was just a major serious challenge for me. So traditional schooling did not work, and it created a lot of suffering for me, a lot of disconnect between other people. I, uh, Because of my challenges, I was sort of ostracized socially. Um, I had a lot of social anxiety, a lot of difficulties, just simply as a result of how I was grown up. And my mother, who was a teacher, was also sort of, it was communicated to her that I'm, uh, that I was choosing to be challenged, not that I was actually truly challenged. I was basically being lazy and not putting in real effort to things. And how did that make you feel? It, I just, I, I didn't think I was anything. I was basically from, I'd say, zero to 17, 18 years old. I basically was taught that I was nothing. I would have no value. I would never succeed in life. Nothing would ever really happen for me. Uh, I didn't have any socialization, so I didn't have anybody else sending me positive messages. And finally, uh, I was put in a, like a day treatment program. And I'd go home uh, at the end of the day, but I did schooling and then, um, and then treatment. And in the group therapy, we ended up, I ended up feeling less different and ended up finally developing social connections, finally realizing that there were other people that could understand and recognize who I was. That was sort of the beginning of my journey. Um, and from there, uh, so I'm in my 40s. There was uh, really, at the time in my late teens, early 20s, there was uh, AOL, and they were doing like chat rooms and chat groups. And so I opened a... Uh, I frequently opened a, uh, a room called Good Listener, and it was really about being present for other people. I, Because I was more of an observer in my life, I saw things in a different way. So I was able to hold space and really give people information. I started recognizing that I had value. At, at times, I had people tell me that they truly believed I saved their life just simply because of my support. And that started teaching me that I personally had value and that all these people that treated me as if I was nothing or would be nothing were actually wrong. And from there, I, you know, I, I left uh, traditional high school. I had to do an extra year. Uh, but then I left school, tried to go to college, really didn't succeed at it at all. Um, and then I started working uh, temporarily in the sort of the corporate world, just doing administrative stuff. From there, I found massage therapy. And after I found massage, I found a technique called Reiki, which is all about Japanese energy healing. And after my first attunement, I found just all this alternative holistic healing. And I, there was a particular new age shop that I, that I found, and it really helped me learn all these different amazing techniques. And from there, over the next 20 plus years now, um, I've, I've just found a, a niche for me and I've just developed this amazing gift that, you know, especially because of how I function, I don't always fully understand it, but just works really well for people. Like I really, 
I find people recognize that there is something amazing in what I do and what I offer. And I, I love it. And I just, you know, I, I went from having no ability to celebrate myself to really loving who I am and just loving, loving my life. And it was, uh, it was definitely a complex journey, but I, I loved it. You know, I love it. And I, you know, I work with people all the time. I'm really big on learning how to express and communicate information and also learning that you can't express and communicate information with people. So tell us about your journey through massage school. So I actually, um, uh, I joined a school called the uh, uh, CCMT, is Connecticut Center for Massage Therapy. And I started there and I, you know, I tried to do my best, but the people there basically told me that because I was overweight, because I wasn't the vision of what they saw as a massage therapist, they basically told me, you really should rethink a new career. And um, I, you know, at the time I was still working on my self-confidence, my self-value, I got really depressed. And um, I decided that I needed to kind of get away. I spent like a week in Jamaica. And while I was there, I some people had sort of connected with me and they – I was by myself, but people sort of reached out to me and they supported me and they, I spent the most of the time with them. Then it was amazing on the way on the flight back from Jamaica to Philadelphia before I landed back in Connecticut, I was sat next to someone and I started talking a little bit about that. I wanted to be a massage therapist. And the guy next to me said, you know, it's really strange. I actually went to uh, look into massage therapy, but there were no loans and grants so I decided to go in a different direction. I was really excited because when I started massage therapy, they finally started offering those federal loans and grants. I started talking to the person sitting next to me about the loans and grants that were available and the opportunities. And, you know, you could still probably go back with something you're connected in. And it, it sparked an inspiration for me to go back and look into it. it at that point, uh, it was you know, a week or two, and I found an accelerated program that I went to, and they were starting to enter the area where I had just finished. And so what ended up happening is because it was an accelerated program, I actually finished one month before my original graduating class. It was just this amazing synchronistic grouping of events that was just so powerful for me. And it's one of those things that really helped me believe and have faith in an aspect of synchronicity because, uh, you know, technically I was raised Jewish, but I really, I, I wasn't taught about the universe or support or any sort of higher vibrational energy. I was definitely an atheist before I started on my path. And it was only through these amazing synchronicities and these amazing combination of events that I started to realize, wow, there's something else here. There's an additional kind of intelligent universe. Do I fully understand how it is? Do I believe in a specific technique or philosophy is right over another? Not really, but I don't need to. That's really, really common in most trauma therapies and trauma modalities because so much of it is based even similarly on like a 12-step program. There's an element of 
there's an element of giving yourself over to a higher energy, a higher power, a higher self, whatever it is that spiritually works for you. It doesn't really matter. It can still be, you can go with the higher self. You can go with the universe. You can go with God. You can go with whatever religion happens to whatever spirit sparks you. But there is almost always an element of some kind of awareness that there's something bigger than ourselves at work and the patterns at play and cause and effect and the laws of the universe. There's all a little bit of, (laughs) there's a little bit of play in all of this healing work. Even the most textbook scientific straight to the point healing work is still going to have a just a touch element of some of that spiritual. So it's definitely there. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, it is. So you're really focused on the importance of language and the importance of language and self. Can you tell us a little bit about that work that you're doing? Okay. So um, I work with individuals. I also work with couples and families and a lot of what it is, is we, we have feelings, we have awarenesses, we have experiences, but it's in the form of sort of either feelings or identity. We don't, we're not really taught to think in terms of discovering the right words to describe the experience. We, a lot of times we use generalized overall terms, but I believe uniquely we kind of receive each word with our own definitions. So if you can start working with specific words or word groupings or phrases or different things, it really helps people to receive what you say in a different way. Like one of the things that I talk about is rather than being loved, I talk about being cherished, okay? Because we we all want to be loved, but how other people love us is kind of like typically how they love us. Whereas if you want to talk about cherished, you have this identity of where someone, I kind of define cherished as when you're cherishing someone, you're stepping away from what you believe someone wants to receive or be appreciated by and really searching out and really searching in your connection with them to say, this is what is really going to work to light them up. What's really going to help them celebrate. And I believe that we also need to know within ourselves Okay, saying saying to someone, hey, I know that you love me. I I recognize that you're trying to express it, but if you really want to make me feel cherished, if you really want to make me feel celebrated, do this instead. Like really finding it within ourselves, what really lights us off. A lot of times we're kind of taught, accept love in whatever form I'm presenting it to you and just be able to be lit up by that. And I just don't find that really realistic. I mean you know, it's nice if you can do it. There are people that are are able to receive however someone wants to offer something to them. And I think that's great. And I think that's wonderful. But I think a lot of times when we have a more personal connection to how we receive, how we engage, how we choose different things, giving ourselves permission to say, hey, I love that this person tries to offer me this, but it's not clicking. It's not working. How can I instead say to this person, like, how can I I just really don't believe we can change how we receive. So when you're communicating to someone that you love or somebody that you're in the family with or somewhere with different things, you know, like I have a, for me, when I'm concerned about someone and 
they tell me, oh, nothing's wrong. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm connecting into them and I feel like, okay, they're, they're being triggered or they're upset or they're distraught and they tell me nothing. So I, I, that particular word in particular is something that triggers me to feel like someone's trying to deceive me. They're trying to like hide something from me. It triggers that kind of like, um, experience. I just, I start feeling like, okay, this person's lying to me and I don't want to feel that. It's not like, I, oh, I choose to feel that from this work, but I'll tell people when I meet them or when I start to get close to them, you know, look, I, I know it's strange, but if I'm asking you what's wrong, please tell me, you know, I don't want to talk about it. I'm not ready to discuss it. Um, it's not something I have the words for whatever it is, but please just don't say nothing because it, it just, and you know, if people can't get that, that's okay. I don't, I'm not angry at them. I'm not mad at them. I just communicate to them that they're not necessarily the best uh, person for me to relate to. If they can't acknowledge and understand that that word has, it, it creates an experience for me that is still something I'm reacting to. I'm still engaged with. And it's when we know these things or when we understand these things that we can create better communication. And, you know, another part for me is I, I just don't believe everyone learns and receives information in the same way. So I'm a pretty emotional person. So I speak using a lot of emotionally cued words. But if I'm working with someone that I know is very linear and very logical, I'm going to say, okay, well, I know this person's logical. I know they're linear. So how can I cut this down? How can I really be super concise? How can I really engage in those things. And not only can I do that for myself, but I, I have techniques and ways I can actually help other people check in and learn how to do that themselves. Really learn how to create uh, the connections to the best of their ability because connection is still a two, two-way thing. So you can be a phenomenal communicator. I can be a phenomenal communicator. And even though I'm communicating, it doesn't mean I'm necessarily reaching that other person. It may be no matter how hard I try, no matter how many amazing techniques I have, and I do believe I have amazing techniques in my tool belt, because that other person can't receive that concept. It's not their choice. It's literally the idea or the combination of concepts is just not possible. So I teach people to kind of say, share information, but when you start feeling like you walk into the energy of trying to convince someone of something, you already know they're not receptive. And so watch that as you become more tuned, watch that ability to, um, to convince. If you're feeling like you're convincing, then you're probably expending too much energy. You may want to pull back and sort of refocus on finding a, another person who, rather than putting so much energy to convincing, you're just sharing information with. Yeah. <clears throat> so in my work, that looks a little something like do that concept of do unto others as you would have done to you is not really the right way to look at it. It's do unto right. others as they would like you to do to them. <laughs> right. And being able to notice the difference in those two phrases and recognize, okay, what's the comp? I'm a really big fan of Marshall Rosenberg um, and nonviolent communication where you come to any conversation with 
recognizing the common ground on which you both stand, coming to that place of compassion and empathy and making your request very clear, just simply stating exactly what you need from the person, explaining exactly how you feel when the situation that's happening happens and exactly what you need from the other person to feel differently about this, whatever's going on. So learning how to communicate in a way that is not an assault, is not an attack, is not undermining the other person's desire to love you a certain way, as you put it. Right. Giving them credit for, I recognize that you're, this is your way of expressing. This is my way of receiving. If you did this particular action, if you did this particular activity, I would hear you better. I would understand you better. And I think one of the pieces that I talk about within that is there's a piece before that of really being clear yourself. A lot of times I teach people to write lists of how they actually receive because they may not be clear themselves. So there's like a lot of pieces that go in. I think of that as kind of the final piece of being able to go through that process. And I, I definitely agree. That's super important, but we also need to have like, some people just want to get into the conversation and sometimes we really need to be able to step back and say, okay, well, where's, where's my piece in it. So I can really engage with, those pieces because there's also the aspect of honoring well am i walking in expectations of what this person should already know and so like doing a couple of pieces of like thought before you just kind of walk it in can really be helpful a lot of times i i work with people pleasers like that tends to be one of my major people and people pleasers don't realize that by being people pleasers they are actually creating the illusion that they have no needs. There's never a point at which someone can naturally and easily observe someone even feeding themselves because people pleasers ignore their needs. So even if someone was observant, even if they were aware, which I don't necessarily know that I believe a lot of people are, but like even if they were, they wouldn't necessarily be able to observe because that person isn't even in the space of receiving. So that's one of the things, you know, that's one of the other pieces is like, even before that conversation, okay, well, let's look, are you, how would that person know that them loving you? And also, it just came to me, if someone is a people pleaser, they may be pretending to receive love in a way that doesn't really work for them. So they even kind of need to apologize for not communicating or to for agreeing with something they don't actually agree with. And that can be a challenging place to be when working with communication and language and, and connection of like saying, you know, wow, I've spent 15 years accepting these things. And, you know, what is the other person supposed to think except, well, I accepted them. These are the things. And so that can be a tough conversation to have as well. I think one of my favorite, favorite conversations to have with people pleasers is simply asking the question, who are you? Yeah. It is so unbelievable, unbelievably revealing 
And you can get into such deep, amazing work just with that question. And the sheer fact that most people pleasers can't answer that question with anything other than labels and roles. They can tell you they're someone's sister. They can tell you they're a mother. They can tell you they're a wife. But when you get down to the nitty gritty and you're, you're looking for, you know, what are your core values? What matters to you? What is your like essence of your humanity? Who are you? And they're just like, I don't know. I have no idea. So one of the other questions I ask people is what adventures are you excited to go on? And like, that's, I'm really a big believer in creating moments you can connect to. And that question is, you know, and then you ask them, well, what adventures are you excited to go on? And they look at you, well, whatever this person wants to do, whatever that person wants to do. And I said, no, no, no. I mean, ignoring what how someone else celebrates life, how do you celebrate life? What activities are for you without sort of riding someone else's experience? Is very challenging. And the reason we're talking so much about people pleasing behavior is because it is literally one of the number one most common trauma responses in existence. Yep. It is yep. literally, uh, I honestly can't tell you a single client that I've ever worked with that has a trauma reactivity that isn't in some way, shape, or another either a people pleaser or in full avoidance. Right. people. So yeah. one way or the other, you're all in or you're all out. Right. <laughs> so yeah. that, <clears throat> for it, those that because, don't know, that's, that's oh, why the people pleasing is such a really hot topic for people who work with, with trauma. Yeah. yeah, I really agree. I see it all the time. And it's because a lot of times when we receive um, a challenging or negative emotion, especially when we're younger, we don't know how to frame it as something that's truly outside of ourselves, even if it is. And so I just, I feel like um, we think that we're the one that's the cause of it. And that we for, therefore need to change our behavior so that the negative emotional you know, experience just doesn't work. Yeah. You know? Defense mechanisms. There is such a long list of defense mechanisms. That's the challenge with a lot of these conversations is either navigating your own defense mechanisms and then also navigating the defense mechanisms of other people, you know, because we're, we're triggered by either, you know, I really believe in if we can engage in a communication of, I don't know, it can be a really great thing, but there's such an expectation of what we do, what we should know. Like you should know this. It's like, you're like, you're 25 years old. There's a laundry list of things that everyone should be able to do. If not, there's something really wrong with you. Like there's all these kind of ideas of, but if you really look at it, where, where did, where would some of have learned these skills given the other experiences that they're, they're having, when would they have been exposed to, Like, I grew up, my family was divorced at a young age. Relationship role models were not really what I would call, you know, amazingly healthy. Where would I have learned 
anything about that except for the fact that I sort of stepped out into the world and started learning more about that type of stuff. But where would I previously have learned that information? The the way to communicate in a healthy way. Communication in my house was not literally the loudest voice one, which is why you may notice I have a loud voice. <laughs> you know, that was one of the ways that we kind of experienced those things and we kind of engaged with that. I I was never exposed to any healthy way of communicating or I was I was definitely never received. So how was I how am I supposed to learn these skills except hopefully by an experience or opportunity that comes along. Right. Absolutely. Our school system doesn't teach people what they need to know. We don't teach coping skills. We don't teach an understanding of love languages. We don't teach an understanding of different personality types. We don't teach how to communicate with people who may be different than us. We, we are very competitive from the get go. There's, tons of judgment on our kids and if they're not getting it at home the love and affection and attention it's also often reinforced because that's what they expect to experience at school their teacher not being kind to them might not be directly intended to be unkind but because the teacher's dealing with 30 students and that student has a terrible experience at home when they get to school and the teacher doesn't smile directly at them or doesn't make eye contact, they perceive that much bigger than it is. And every single interaction throughout the day just reinforces those expectations. So our school systems, there is nothing to teach young people any trauma coping mechanisms. We don't teach them how to breathe properly. We don't teach them how to have present moment awareness. We don't teach them to, we really don't teach them to be kind to others or empathize or just accept. There's so many. We don't, we don't teach them any success driven things. I mean, along the aspect of not even teaching people to succeed, we're taught, to be so scared of failing in life. Like so many, so many parents are like, oh my God, what if my child becomes a failure? And it's like, that's what you're dealing with. Not at, you know, 25, 30 years old when you're not connecting to different things. It's like, at, at, at yeah, five years old, at six years old. Like I, um, sadly, I had a first grade teacher who I still have some trigger stuff around um like uh she basically we we started to do writing now i mentioned my writing issues and stuff like that i was made to sit in class while everyone else was playing and laughing in the background and i was actually made to like write everything out to the best of my ability it was never good enough and it was only toward the very end of my first grade year that my parents finally believed me that I was experiencing these things. And uh, it was made aware that she was, it was her last year before she retired. She'd really become very, you know, she was just, she was, she herself had experienced a lot of challenge and during her things, but she really, she was exhausted and she just took out a lot of that stuff on singling me out. And I understand it, but going back to my childhood, it's like, I really wish 
that I'd had people that helped me celebrate learning a little bit more. Like my kindergarten teacher was actually much better at that, had a much better manner about, about her. And it really created that positive connection. But the wounds that were created based on um, what I saw in first grade, they really kind of followed me throughout most of my, my scholastic career at that, after that. Yeah, this is definitely, yeah. this leads into a really big discussion on trauma in general. <laughs> and you and I were talking about this earlier, how it's really important for everyone out there to understand that trauma comes in many, many different forms. And it's not the incident specifically that has to be really traumatic or really big or really recognizable as something that's going to affect you. What really defines it as a trauma is the reactivity in the body and the way the person who experiences it receives it. So any of those things that program you, any of those things that condition you or cause that nervous system memory function, there's a whole bunch of different layers going on. It can be something as simple as being stuck at the dinner table. And this is a client example that's happened more than one time. Sitting at the dinner table, eating something you didn't want to eat and having your parents force you to sit there until you did it and remembering the gagging on the food and the remembering how horrific that experience felt to you. And that food was more important to your parents than your comfort. They weren't listening to you. They weren't recognizing your distress. So in that moment, your unmet needs were huge. But the, the memory, when we describe that to someone, the actual memory is nothing. Oh, well, you sat there and you had to eat peas. Oh my gosh, poor you, right? No, it literally is a reinforcement that your needs didn't matter, that you were not important, that you were not to be heard, that those peas were more important than you. There were so many messages being put into your body in that tiny little experience. That is what trauma looks like. That's what developmental trauma looks like. And this is not saying that your parents were bad because every parent does that kind of thing. You know, there's yeah, always a moment. There's a moment when your parent does something that damages you and they don't mean to. It's not bad parenting. It's literally just your tiny childlike brain that doesn't understand what's really happening around you. So when we talk about trauma, it's not a comparative that my trauma is bigger than your trauma. It's really about how your trauma affected you and how your trauma affected someone else. And we treat all of these traumas the same. So if you were in a car accident that almost killed you and you had to sit at the dinner table and eat peas, you may have to go through all of the same emotional processing. You may yep. have to go through all of the subconscious belief changing. You may have to go through all of this learning to be in touch with yourself and your emotions to be able to articulate your needs, to be able to recognize what part of your life is you and what part of your life is what other people want you to be. There's so many layers in there yeah. and they can be exactly the same no matter what experiences got you here. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I completely agree with that. I, I definitely, like we were saying earlier, there are a lot of people that are in trauma that mistakenly judge and compare the trauma. And it's really, it really is, you know, 
I don't ever believe in taking away from someone else's pain. But at the same time, you know, the challenge also is I don't know that people can really understand. Well, yes, that wouldn't trigger you. That wouldn't disrupt you. But you're not them. You literally, the blueprint, the the maze that got you to where you are is so uniquely drawn differently than someone else's. And it's just, it's, especially when you're in pain, it almost becomes even more difficult to say, well, how can I acknowledge someone else's pain when I'm still screaming for my own? And so I understand it. Um, one thing I will say is that I agree that it's not necessarily a bad parent, but sometimes it really is a bad parent as well. You know, there is truth to that too. <laughs> okay. Like there are part of the thing is is that there are people that operate in a level of unconsciousness, but there are other people that I really do believe operate in a level of maliciousness. And so navigating the challenge between the two can be very, uh, very unique in and of itself as well. You know, I just. Yeah. My, my way of working with people is very, very unique because I don't have to, I don't have to worry about the judgments. They don't matter in my line of treatment. Like all of that stuff, it's, it's irrelevant for me, but but there is absolutely, I do, you know, the human part of me, not the, not the therapist part of me, right. <laughs> the human part of me says, yeah, there are some horrible, horrific, terrible people that should be judged, Right. <laughs> but it's just not part of, it's not part of my, my work. And but I, and I, I respect that. I, that. I, I, it is a part of my work because I really believe sometimes the best option is to create uh either distance or complete disconnect with people. Sometimes it's so to really be able to recognize, okay, no, this person is just no matter how much you love them, no matter how much you care about them, no matter how much, you know, again, they also may not even be bad, but that there is such an experience from them that you need to engage um, or you need to disengage or distance or whatever it is. And it's so hard for people. I, I kind of say to a certain degree, I'm lucky that my trauma was so strong that it created that natural disconnect. Like it made me recognize, so I don't have to battle with myself to say, oh, um, I, um, you know, I should still hang on. She wasn't a bad person. Like I should still really have this deep connection to this person because I'm biologically related to them my experience literally destroyed any any desire or interest in in honoring that aspect and so sometimes i work with my clients to say you know i know that you love this person but your experience with them or their inability to engage with you in any healthy way just requires a complete disconnect and sometimes it requires a lot of work and a lot of separation for other people to say okay I'm just either I'm not ready or I'm not able to disconnect in these ways. And so it's really about can you engage in whatever healthy way or manner works for you? Like really looking at, okay, yes, you love them. Yes, they raised you. They put 
food on the table. They gave you all the tools you needed as far as your finances go. But can you grow with that anchor? Can you grow with that um, that thing so pulling you down? And so sometimes I, I will admit I get more into a sense of judgment. I also really work with creating a sense of victory. Like a lot of people really seek for peace and they really want to just kind of have peace and acceptance. And um, sometimes in the work that I do, when I work with people with trauma, like I had, I had to have a sense of victory. I had to have like a list of things that I've achieved that I can use as a way to feel, celebrate myself and value. It wasn't about being peaceful and accepting my limitations or anything like that. It was also about like, where am I, again, that word celebration is so key to, and celebrate myself? What do you mean? That doesn't work. That's not possible. Like, that's literally how I was trained. Like, unless you get all these ducks in a row, you don't, you shouldn't give yourself permission to celebrate. You know, celebrate all the small things. (laughs) Yes. And it's like, it's also that, you know, perfectionism, like, and for me, perfection was something that was never achievable. So I, I also kind of put that away. I know a lot of people struggle with it and I definitely work with people on that, that level of things, but, um, you know, I'm an extremely imperfect individual and I know that and I know that. And I believe in finding external support. Like the thing that helped me the most in my growth and my forward motion is I found people that were just so intuitive and aware and they saw like my potential in such a way that they celebrated me and they, they would tell me, wow, you're so amazing at this or wow, you're so amazing at that. And to me, I wasn't able to find any positive identity within myself, but I had people teaching me what was lovable in me. Like I had people literally telling me, you are good at this. And I know everyone's like, well, you should love yourself before you love someone else. But part of my belief is, but you need to find people that can teach you what's lovable in you, especially if you come from a circumstance like mine, where I was taught how unlovable I was. Where's my point of reference of what to celebrate in myself if nothing, and I mean nothing, was ever celebrated? How am I supposed to magically turn that light on? Well, I believe you can't. I know that there are other people that they found their way through being able to do it themselves, and I'm not trying to take away from that. But know that there are other ways. Like, yes, it's great that you found your self-confidence through your own process through reading a particular book or being inspired by this. I needed people to tell me. I needed people to actually engage with me and say, hey, wait, you're not looking at this. Why the F are you not looking at this? And it's amazing because so few people acknowledge that external support can be the thing that gets you through everything. It's just about choosing and finding and playing with finding that external support. I do almost nothing on my own. 
I need a personal trainer to help me focus on my health. I have friends that help me refocus my diet and my eating. I, I'm a messy person because I'm so in my head all the time. I pay someone to clean my space so I have a healthy, clean space to live in. I find ways that I get the support that I can't bring to my own self through my own direct energy. And I think it's really sad that so many people end up judging and attacking you for finding a solution that isn't you. And I think that's really a shame because originally we were a very communal society. Like you only did one thing. You were a farmer. You didn't try and be an innkeeper. You didn't try and be a blacksmith. You didn't try and do all these other things. You said, okay, this is where my skill is. I'm going to celebrate this. I'm going to do this. And I'm going to trust that everyone else in there has their skill set. And they're going to do that. And I'm going to leave them to do that. I think yeah. you just made a good point that every single person has a different path and every single person has a different solution. And we're going to cut off tonight with, okay. with the being on the theme of celebrations. Give us your number one next bucket list item that you're absolutely going to do. So I recorded a um so i wrote a book back in 2018 uh with the same name as my business the clearest you and i just recently recorded the audiobook of it so i'm it's now going through the editing process and so i'm going to edit it and then have it produced through a company that's an excellent bucket list item that is that is and you guys can all see his business name right underneath there. If yep. you guys want to find him and he his message or his uh, ideas resonate with you and you think that he can help you, go ahead and look him up. That is also his website. Yep. And it's all one word without the parentheses. Theclearestyou.com. Okay. Awesome. Thank you for coming and visiting with us tonight. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Have an awesome evening. Yep. All right, everybody. That is a wrap for episode four. Again, if you need to look him up, his website will also be, I'm going to put it in the comments of our YouTube for the, for the replays. And again, this video will be on the Facebook, the Coach Krista Fee Facebook, the Battle to Be Facebook, and the YouTube for Sahara Rising and Battle to Be. Just a reminder that this podcast is for the Battle to Be program. And in case you don't know what the Battle to Be program is, it is a trauma transformation program for our heroes and survivors. And we work specifically most often with our military, police officers, firemen, EMTs, and other first responders, as well as the flip side of that are victims of human trafficking, domestic violence, childhood abuse, and neglect. So if you want to help our clientele have access awareness, healing, and change. Please continue to watch our podcast, share our events, 
follow us on Facebook, follow us on YouTube, and just keep track of what we're up to as this movement grows. We are already doing some amazing, amazing events coming up this summer. So I'm really, really excited. And we can't do it without you. Together, we rise like a phoenix out of the ashes of our experiences. We can all live our lives on fire. Never forget, you are loved, you are worthy, you are limitless, you are unstoppable. And you never have to do it alone. Thank you very much. Have an excellent evening.